I'm Chris Tapley, and you're listening to The Call Sheet, a show that dives deep into the craft of your favorite Netflix films and series with some of the most talented artists and artisans in the game. We're digging in on love and marriage this week with a celebrated filmmaker, so let's hear from him first. My name is Noah Baumbach, and my craft is filmmaking. Noah Baumbach is one of the most singular filmmaking talents working in the medium. Ever since his 1995 debut, Kicking and Screaming, his has been a sui generis blend of comedy, tragedy, pathos, and frankly, human insight. Few people write dimensional frailty the way Noah does, and that has led to deep and personal explorations over the years. His latest film, Marriage Story, is a new chapter in that ongoing journey and perhaps the most potent one yet. It tells the story of a marriage through the lens of divorce, and yes, it takes plenty from Noah's own experiences, but it's also rendered into a more universal space by the intense collaboration Noah had with his actors, Adam Driver, Scarlett Johansson, and Laura Dern among them. But cinematically, it's a little tricky. How do you find the right engaging visual language to tell a story that is essentially people and lawyers in offices talking through their domestic drama? So let's get into it. Okay, Noah, let's begin on the page with the writing of Marriage Story. You know, the movie developed out of a divorce subplot that you had been working on for the Meyerowitz stories. You know, it took on a life of its own. And I'm just curious, like, did it start to come together quickly or was it, you know, what was the difficulty of building out a full story as opposed to, you know, something that was just a subplot in a previous story? To be clear, it wasn't built as a subplot to the Meyerowitz stories. It was more that when I started writing what became the Meyerowitz stories, I played around with the notion of divorce being more central to it. Mm -hmm. Um, There were elements of what became marriage story that I had been thinking about for years. So a lot of it's hard to to fully locate in terms of time and place of mm-hmm. like how long certain things took because i think a lot of it is is living with things different ideas uh location ideas character ideas lines of dialogue story ideas all of these things that find their way into notebooks and you know from movie to movie and then don't yeah. make it into one movie find their way kick down the line to another movie they always change once once they're put with something else it's like all these things that become something it, it becomes something entirely different and in a sense i'm looking for the right context cuz it's like when something comes alive is when i feel like oh now i'm interested in writing this mm-hmm. and that happened with marriage story at some point when i was in post on Meyerowitz that I felt like, I think I see something here. I didn't know what the movie was going to be, but I, 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 there was some path ahead. It's a uh, quote Greta told me uh, that came from E.L. Doctorow, which was that a writer only is like a car driving at night. It's like, you only have to see as far ahead as your headlights. Mm, yeah. And I think um, it's a good one. <laughs> it's, a yeah. good, it's a good quote. And I think it, it's, and I think that's true. It's like, sometimes you feel like, as long as you're moving forward and you see enough ahead of you, that's that's that will get you there. Yeah. Well, when you started crafting these characters on the page, uh, it's something that I find when I'm watching the movie that's really interesting is that the sympathy feels finely calibrated. Just personally, I'm constantly vacillating, especially that first viewing between the two in terms of allegiance, you know. Uh, and it, I'm just wondering if that was something that you constantly had an eye on 
as you were writing? Uh, was that something that you were wanting to kind of finely tune or did that just naturally develop because you're being very true to these characters separately anyway? I think it came fairly naturally, but I was also aware that it, the structure of the movie also relied on this even handedness. I mean, it, mm -hmm. and the story did, but it was something that was important to me going into it. There wasn't another version of this movie that was interesting to me to make. For the most part, it was following each character. And, you know, then it became about finding the moments of, you know, how much do we show? When do we cut to mm -hmm. back? And and that all came sort of in the shaping of it. But the sort of early stages, it was, as you say, being true to the characters and and just trying to tell their two stories. I mean, in a sense, I thought of the first half of the movie almost like two different movies. It was there's the movie of the woman who leaves her husband and goes back to her hometown, or in this case, it's her hometown is Los Angeles and reconnects with family, starts a new job, you know, that it's a, I suppose, a certain genre of movie in that way. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, almost like an Alice doesn't live here anymore, you know, in a sense. And then, and then he returns into that movie and then the movie shifts. And then I was thinking almost about if it were his movie, it would be, you know, the man who's caught off guard, his mm -hmm. wife leaves, he's trying to be a good dad to his kid, mm -hmm. uh, trying to do many things at once, caught between two cities. So it, it, in a sense, I thought, well, they're, they're both the heroes of these two different movies. Let's make that one movie. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. All of that said, I've, I found it kind of fascinating now that people are getting a look at the movie. Like there's definitely some, some real allegiances being drawn. Like there's some strong reactions in terms of people taking sides, I guess. Has that surprised you at all? Or did you maybe expect that a movie like this, maybe that would happen? Well, it doesn't surprise me because it was something I was very aware of in the in the writing and, and in the making of it is that it would be natural for the audience to take sides. And so yeah. that what we're doing in a semi-invisible way is encouraging it, you know, when, when, when you watch the movie. I mean, by even sort of thinking about it is like I was just saying of these two different movies, mm -hmm. if you were watching either of those movies separately, you would take the side of the person whose movie you're watching. It's mm -hmm. natural. It's what audiences do. So- by fusing them together in a way, it naturally the audience is going to find themselves tacking back and forth. They're going to tack towards her because we're more with her in the beginning and then mm -hmm. they're going to tack more towards him. So I do understand it. And, and it's something that I felt very aware of in, in both the writing and, 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 the, and then the way we visualized it in the directing. So where we arrive in the movie is, is, is sort of at the place that wherever you've been in terms of allegiance, in, in some sense, doesn't matter, I think, because it's, mm -hmm. it's, they're both worthy of our sympathy and yeah. empathy and, and, and allegiance. And in some sense, it's both natural and understandable why people take sides. But in real life, Jean Renoir said everybody has their reasons. And, and, and in the case of this movie, they're both doing their best. It's a little bit of a Rorschach, too, I think, in some sense. I mean, people bring what they bring to this movie. Which I know? knew, too. And I knew that would be a big part of it. And um, and it's been very interesting to me and, and gratifying to me in traveling with the movie and talking to people, hearing people's stories. And and people are very conscious of that the fact that they're bringing their own lives to it. And I think that's part of the pleasure of the movie, too, mm -hmm. is that it's a kind of meeting place in a sense for for the audience's own stories. Yeah, exactly. And it's in not just the two of them that would be driving some of this as well. There's also the lawyer characters and how that system obviously impacts how you're absorbing the story. And so I wanted to ask on, on the page as well, when you were writing these lawyer characters that are played by Alan Alda and Ray Liotta and Laura Dern, 
was it important to not villainize them? Because uh, again, there's there's balance there as far as I see it to how they're portrayed. Yeah, I didn't see any of them as villains, and and that was important to me. I felt like the system itself is can be somewhat bizarre. It mm-hmm. can can feel like a Kafka uh, story, um, but these are people who are professionals who are doing their jobs and they know how to work within this system mm-hmm. and they've they've learned that and that's ostensibly why you're hiring them yeah. um in some ways which can also be frustrating when you're charlie and nicole they don't take sides i mean they take the side of their client clearly but then you know they go home and mm-hmm. that's a day at work and if the roles have been reversed and charlie had hired nora and nicole had hired jay and they would be just as tough for for that person so in the sense the the arguments they're making for the for the characters i mean for the characters this is their lives this is their mm. their real stories for the lawyers they're just the story they've been handed yeah so they're gonna say they're gonna make the argument that's in front of them yeah exactly all right so now moving into production you're gonna lift these ideas off of the page and start to get into the visual storytelling. Before I touch on that, though, I wanted to talk about the score because it's prevalent up front from the beginning with these kind of his and hers montage packages. Randy Newman's work is on full display and it's beautiful. And, and I just wanted to know first, uh, what did you want music? What role did you want it to play in this film? Well, I had a clear idea of the music when I was writing it. I wanted it to be orchestral. I wanted it to be a kind of true blue movie score that that's mm-hmm. like in my head, that's what I wanted. Something that was big. I mean, the, the, the funny thing is of course for Randy, who's, you know, conducted uh, very big orchestras. This was actually quite small. Uh, it was a chamber orchestra, 30, 30 people one day, 50 on another. But for me, this was, you know, as, as big as it's gotten. <laughs> uh, and I wanted it to be compassionate. I knew uh, early on the, in, in working on it, the characters were going to go through a journey that was going to, you know, that was going to be challenging and there were going to be struggles and pain and feelings of hopelessness. And, but I th- also felt like, well, there's something essentially heroic that about these two characters going through this. And I wanted in, in a way the music to honor that, mm-hmm. you know, while it never underscores scenes, it's not, a, it's not about playing the emotion that's already present in the movie. I wanted it to feel like a kind of response, you mm-hmm. know, from from the movie itself, almost like it's, it's unearthed. Mm-hmm. The scene unearths the music. And it's something Randy and I talked a lot about. And we talked about the composer, George Delarue, French composer, worked a lot with Truffaut and Godard, and who, whose scores I've actually used as well um, in Francis Ha. I just actually just outright used <laughs> a, a kind of collage of his scores. I liked the sort of big, romantic, joyful, but melancholy, celebratory aspect of, of, of Delarue. And I felt that way a, a bit in Marriage Story. I wanted it to, to really take their struggles seriously, but compassionately. And Randy, when we work together, I, I talk kind of not unlike I'm talking right, right now, which is sort of more conceptual, emotional, mm-hmm. character-wise. And he you know, we'll sit at the piano and start playing and something in his mind and body turns it into a kind of musical response to that. Which I don't understand at all. I don't understand that brain. No, it can I, turn I, emotion I, into music. You know what I mean? It's, it's such an amazing thing to, it's amazing. To, to know that he could sit down and just like 
hear you talking about it and just conjure something. It's like a wizard. Yeah, well, he is. He is. He is like a wizard. Let's talk about the visuals. Uh, I'm curious what first came to your mind visually when you were going to figure out how to tell this story, because just by nature of what it is, you know, the joke is sort of you know, people in rooms talking about divorce. It, it doesn't immediately sound like something that would be rife with visual storytelling. But what were your visual ideas that you had at the top? Because I feel like ultimately, and we're going to get into this, uh, you did a brilliant job of telling the story visually. So what were those first ideas that popped in? Well, I mean, the visuals were all very much responses to the storytelling. When I was writing the script, I was also aware of what are kind of visual concepts for the story I'm creating. So it kind of goes in a circle that way. But, you know, knowing that the opening was going to begin with this, these sort of little moments of our lives, Robbie, Ryan, uh, my DP and I, we, we thought, well, we're going to start this way and then we're going to go, as you were saying, into many scenes that by design are going to have to be in rooms and offices in in these somewhat sterile environments, um, lots of white walls. So let's create a kind of intimate, immediate feeling to these to these little everyday moments. And so we uh, and Robbie's a brilliant operator, camera operator, and he just got in there with a handheld camera and we shot all these sort of moments handheld, knowing that on one hand, it was going to make a very strong statement right off the bat of the movie. And but at the same time, it was never going to you're never going to see the movie this way again. Mm-hmm. The the locations also were you know so important because you have New York and Los Angeles, which are both similar I suppose, culturally, but radically different visually. The light in LA versus light in New York is almost jarringly different. Um, So that we knew was going to influence just how we looked at things. There was also this notion of performance that was sort of baked into the movie. Mm -hmm. Not only the fact that Charlie and Nicole come from performance, they're theater people and Nicole's family is actors and, but also the performance of the lawyers, you know, Mm -hmm. that the lawyers in a sense were going to become sort of these sort of avatar actors for, for, for Charlie and Nicole and Charlie and Nicole in a sense are going to like, sometimes I thought of it almost like some kind of like, you know, children's book where like, you know, these people sort of suck your voice, take your (laughs) voice literally out of your body and put it into theirs or something like that. It was that. So this is Noah Baumbach's ready player one. This is my my ready player one. Um, um, yes. And if you drive backwards under the game, you can, you can, you can win. That is a good point though, that they kind of, they are stand-ins and avatars for them. And, 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 and just that notion of the performative aspect of divorce and of just sort of love and marriage too, in a way. And that influenced the visuals because it influenced the locations we look for. I mean, the, if you look at many of the locations of the movie, there is a kind of performance element. There's almost a stage feeling to the their apartment in new york has a proscenium yeah sandra's kitchen has these sort of ins and outs and almost like a on stage and a backstage Mm -hmm. even the offices have you know there's something kind of presentational even with someone behind a desk and somebody in a chair and we looked at dr strangelove a bit for those for those sequences uh because of like the war room in that movie and the way uh you have again people at tables and it's both absurd as it is in that movie, but also there's real menace. There's real, uh, there's real threat. We often 
shot those uh, scenes, you always see sort of the ceiling and, you know, and, and, uh, Which is funny because there's all this talk about the space in L.A. And when you get to L.A., you're basically in prison. No, you're basically inside. <laughs> yeah. these- and that's why the space you see that, you know, there's a lot of those offices too have these like big windows with these sort of amazing landscapes that almost look like paintings. It's like they're the space is is there. It feels mm-hmm. like it's there. It's almost available, but it's not. It's it's some of those windows have like, you know, the panes, it's like bars and a cell or something. It's true. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Jay Murata's office has that as well. Yeah. You know, the office that Bert and Charlie are in where the sidebar office has no windows. Yeah. And we thought of that almost like those, those, um, it's a forced perspective. Yeah. Like you think you can, you know, but actually the room is narrows as you walk, you know, and, and that the way that was structured with the corner, I, I, we thought of it like that. Also, then the courtroom has no windows as well. And um, whenever they're having their back and forth in the courtroom, you're on them the whole time and the judge. And then suddenly there's a cut to an actual audience has been sitting there kind of watching this go down the whole time. And the way that reveal happens, it's like, oh, look, they've been essentially performing in front of these people this whole time. So it's further to that thematic motif. Right. An audience. Well, yeah. I mean, you think if we go even back to the beginning, you have the we're in the mediator's office and then Nicole gets upset and and she leaves abruptly slams the door the first cut is to an audience mm-hmm. um and i would always felt like well in a sense the audience was as if the audience was watching the scene we just saw and, mm-hmm. but then of course we see that they're watching the play that she's in and and we introduce that uh concept so yeah i was sort of setting the movie audience up for that kind of idea and that so that of course when you do it again in the courtroom revealing that the yeah uh and maybe a subliminally, but you would have sort of those other uh, scenes in your head. Yeah, for sure. And since we're talking about Robbie, let's talk about the portraiture uh, on display here. You've shot in the one six six to one aspect ratio, which is unique. Uh, we're well, not unique, but unusual, I guess. And and talk about why that was uh, the way you guys wanted to go, and, and and what you're playing up with that framing. I felt like, as you say, the portraiture was going to be very important because there is this sort of notion of internal and external. Um, we've been talking about it with the sort of physical world and the sort of inside of these offices, seeing the space outside. It's also what is being said on the outside. What are you feeling on the inside? And, and, and knowing that many of these scenes is, were going to involve the lawyer speaking for these characters. But Robbie and I knew we were going to play a lot of it on Charlie and Nicole. So Charlie and Nicole are essentially, are, are literally silent, but so much is being said on their behalves. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, we project and read so much into those faces. And, and Adam and Scarlett have, they reveal so much with, you know, their expressions, or even the, the slightest expressions kind of say so much. And so the 166, when we were testing, I liked how it sort of, it just narrows the, the frame a bit. I think it just makes it a little more intimate, a little more personal but it brings you in a little bit closer. I think again, in a probably mostly unconscious way, I think, but I felt like the audience would feel sort of just brought in. You know. And you were on wider lenses a lot too, right? So is a camera closer to the actors than maybe? Yeah. 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 Um, so you're in their space a lot. We're in their space a lot. Yeah. And also these were going to be contrasted with, we would always do a kind of low wide shot of every kind of office we called our i think robbie and i called them our like low institutional wides because there was <laughs> something so like nobody's perspective just just objective but they were important because again they kind of just put you in that context of these strange environments you know yeah. this that those 
you know, and, and, and that would be contrasted with the sound Chris Garbosio, uh, sound, uh, mixer and designer. And, and I came up with all these sort of tones and hums for offices. I had musicians actually work on like different tones and, mm. and, and different keys. So like, like what would be a slightly more pleasing in Nora's office versus slightly <laughs> less pleasing in, in, in Ray's and, um, you know, all those buildings have built-in air conditioning systems. So it's always those things like you, you don't think about them when they're on, but when they go off, suddenly it's so quiet, mm -hmm. you know? And, and, um, so that we played with that in Nora's office when Nora says to Nicole, uh, you know, what you're doing is an act of hope. Mm -hmm. If, if you listen closely or think to it, the air conditioning system goes on there, like almost like wind in her yeah. sails. Yeah. And then later when, when Nicole is says, you know, talking about her life with Charlie and sort of starts off quite brightly and then it starts to turn a bit in, in that long monologue. And then she says, but I got smaller, you know, the air conditioning shuts off and mm -hmm. it is quieter. And at one point we'd even thought about putting music in there, but it was, it was an example of where the sound design in a sense did the same thing. And I thought was, was more appropriate. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, the blocking becomes a vital tool with a film like this as well, because you're largely locked down. You don't have the luxury of a lot of camera movement. You know, you end up with a lot of these wonderful frames. I mean, first of all, just some of the, 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 the bigger blocking is stuff like in the house with the quote rehearsal of how they're going to present the papers to Charlie and everything and the ins and outs that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. But I'm also just thinking about some of these frames that you ended up with, like Charlie out of focus in the background when he's giving her notes. Uh, at mm -hmm. the beginning, quote unquote, notes for her performance and, and, you know, just how that visual language started to develop, how, you know, the boundaries of people in the frame and, and how, I think we've talked about this before, but about there, there's a bit of a Bergman inspiration here, I think, but yeah. the, the way, the way that, that, uh, you know, spatial relationships in the frame, just talk to me about all of that. Yeah. Well, that was something, and it's related in a sense to this notion of the space, which is brought up this sort of the notion of the, the space in Los Angeles, which is kind of partly a joke, but was something we, we thought a lot about in, you know, not just the, the, the space of, you know, in terms of like the landscape of Los Angeles or, or New York, but, but the space between people mm -hmm. and people in, in a room and we're always from the perspective of Charlie and Nicole throughout the whole movie sometimes only with one of them, but, uh, and then we would move to the other. Um, and then sometimes they're sharing it. it. Yeah. And the sequence you're talking about, it was that thing they're standing quite far apart and she's again up on that sort of stage mm -hmm. landing in their, in their apartment in Brooklyn. And he's very much like a director in the, like he's in his seat. He's kinda, in his seat and yeah. he's looking up at her and you feel her face sort of in the foreground in profile out of focus when he's talking. And then likewise, you go and he's, his profile is kind of out of focus and it kind of compresses that space. And yeah. it's, it's always kind of interesting where you're uh, conveying visual, visually what's kind of essentially internal, uh, you know, or psychological or emotional. And I'm always looking for sort of a visual language that can, can um, make that interesting, make that and, and make it kind of clear. And, because we could have shot, if you shot that, say that sequence from the side, you would see them both, you know, like we do on the subway where we see them both mm -hmm. like quite separated. The separation is very clear in the frame. But if you actually, uh, you know, shoot over her face and to him on the couch, he's both, we know visually he's quite far away, but there is something that they're both together too. And sort of that thing of together and apart. 
And and that was something we were always looking for when they're in, in scenes together is how they're both together and apart. Yeah. Uh, Phone call, too, I think about it. this. Diff- it's different because they're not together, but just the way the framing and the matching of the cuts there is. is yeah. Interesting. And, and yeah, that was the thing, too. In that phone call on Halloween, we matched, you know, the 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 lens and the size for each. There's like three sort of levels of of cl- we got sort of medium close closer uh, between them and we would, you know, sort of match it one for one. In that case, it's a kind of clearer, uh, way of doing it. Cause we're saying, you know, we're, we're kind of treating them, uh, equitably in a very kind of c- clear cut way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, other times that's done in maybe a slightly more in a way that would maybe more reflect more unconsciously on the audience. Um, but I find it's like, you find these, these ways of shooting and they're not designed to take you out of the movie so you're thinking uh what an amazing concept or mm-hmm. thing because then if you if it does that then it you know then you aren't inside it so what we're trying to do is actually draw you further inside it you know subtly subtly yeah, yeah. and but purely cinematically yeah absolutely and i love the shot that shot of her on in the phone call actually with her david bowie and the the carpet of lights as your costumer, Mark Bridges described it to me. Uh, that's one of my favorite shots in the movie. It's just, there's something beautiful about it and the color and that shot. And that's the thing with Los Angeles too. It's like, you know, because we're in so many interiors and offices and things I wanted whenever we weren't in those places for the, for the locations really to count too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, thinking of there's a party in the player uh, when they, Jack Lemmon's playing piano and there's like, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of early on and Sidney Pollack is walking Tim Robbins character through the party and, and that great Altman way you're getting all these different Hollywood actors, but actors from other Altman movies. It's, it sort of has that found, I wanted to find a house that sort of felt like that house because it was, you know, both, uh, you know, my experience of that movie was also before I really knew Los Angeles. So Mm -hmm. it was like, um, it was like my concept of Hollywood. Let's talk about the post-production element here. Now you've shot your film and you're in the editing room. Uh, what's striking about this movie, It's I think it's two hours and 15 minutes, does not feel that it really moves. You know, I'm sure some of that is part of the pacing on the page, but just the fact that you never feel the length is, is really striking to me. And uh, did you find that rhythm in the edit or was that owed to what the work you put into the script? I mean, tell me about that. Well, it's, it's both. And I bring Jen Lame, my editor, in. I feel like we sort of start the process in the script. I give her the first draft of the script and we do a kind of edit pass on it as if we were editing the movie so that the script is, you know, in a sense is going through the same rigor that we're going to go through later on. Is that common? Uh, I don't know. Do you know? Do you know? I mean, like, I'm I don't just know. curious now because it's such a, it, it makes so much sense, obviously. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think so. And it also then, of course, it's a way to vet, scenes and make sure you know you're yeah. at least you're increasing the odds that you're going to keep everything you shoot um i mean shooting for me too you know time is so important for me during a shoot so i always want time with the actors and time to do many takes and um and shoot long takes and for the actors to be able to explore and 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 so any of that work we can do in advance yeah um uh is critical so and then i involve her throughout the whole shoot she comes to rehearsals much of the time, both so she can have experience with the actors and the performances, which is going to be part of what 
goes into consideration in editorial is is performance and and tone and and then uh but also so we can talk about edit points in these scenes themselves so when i'm blocking the scenes we're talking about cutting points and mm-hmm. and we kind of you know and and so she's working with me and then in conjunction with Robbie who's shooting the scenes in conjunction with Jade Healy who's the production designer who's you know bringing things to the set in the world of the movie that can uh, help the actors or influence the actors, um, and uh, Mark Bridges as well in the, in, in the wardrobe. So it's all, all, the idea is that so that all these things will reflect back on on each other, and we will all give each other ideas. And then when I'm shooting, I bring Jen in. I call her on my way to work every day to talk about uh, the day ahead. So in, in a sense, it's for me to sort of almost like work out the day ahead or how I'm thinking and. She can then respond, if you know, because she's looking, of course, as a whole, and we'll kind of talk about it and see if we feel like we're on the same page that way. And then at lunch, I'll call her and we'll talk about the dailies. Since we shot on film, it was always the dailies from two days before, mm-hmm. uh, just because it takes a second to develop. And so uh, all this is to say is that when we're sitting down in post and cutting, we're you know largely in sync together, and also. You know, we have this sort of history uh, on this movie that that we're drawing from at all times. Um, In answer to your question about sort of the pace and things, I mean, it is some of it was in the script. Uh, I mean, I would say a lot of it is in the script. A lot of it is at least the the roadmap is in the script. But but we're you know always sort of finding things. Yeah, you know, I think it's wonderfully constructed. I mean, and and by the way, shout out to her. She was recognized by the American Cinema Editors Organization this month, which, uh, you know, really happy to see that because this is the kind of movie, again, like you never know if these kinds of things will get noticed. And to your point earlier, it's it, the subtlety is the point sometimes. So it's, it's great when that craft really gets. I, I, yeah, I'm really happy for her. I think a, a quote you and I've talked about before, but that Mike Nichols said about, you know, yeah. every director needs a buddy. Uh, yeah. And I think, I think about that a lot in terms of, of working with Jen, how, you know, just how important she is to, to, to the whole movie, not yeah. just to what she does. Editing rightfully so is often acknowledged for, because there's a lot of editing, yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. uh, and, 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 and rightfully it should be, but making one edit at the right moment is just as important. Absolutely. And, and editing in a sense, it's, it's actually sometimes easier to edit a performance that maybe doesn't quite work because you only have one path to like figuring it <laughs> Find out. Find the right takes. When yeah. you have Adam and Scarlett and Laura and Ray and Alan, Eji, Julie, Merritt, everybody who is giving you so many shades of, of human behavior in these, in these scenes and, and great moments that are funny and moving and, 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 you know, the editing has to be as good as those performances, yeah. you know, because it also, you have actors who are fearless, who are not afraid to to try things and 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 go for stuff that might be too much, too little. Mm-hmm. Um, Laura talks about this a lot. How she loves just that, that freedom of just being able to push and and know that you're going to take care of her. Yeah, and um, it's so important and so important to have an editor who you know is so sensitive to nuance and to not only performance in the moment, but how performance the calibration of performance over the course of a whole movie. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's really, uh, that's what I think the great ones do. For sure. 
Well, let's drill down on one scene in particular, and it's the big scene of the movie, I think, which is this big fight they have at the end. Talk to me about constructing that fight. Uh, you know, what kind of coverage did you want to get for it and uh, shaping it in the editing room, shaping those performances? I mean, you know, it's not like you were finding performances or shaping a performance that wasn't already there, to your point. But uh, just tell me about building that sequence, because something that's interesting to me, just one little note about it is how, you know, the angles start far back and then you get closer and closer to them as you go. And by the end of it, you're, you're right in their faces. And that's just a, a very elegant way to, to handle one part of that. But you tell me about all of your thoughts in constructing that scene. Yeah, well, that's a, it's a very good, I mean, example of what, what I was talking about in terms of the preparation for a scene like that, of the way we rehearse, um, you know, we rehearse first, just Scarlett and Adam alone in a rehearsal space. and just sitting in chairs, getting used to the language, the rhythms, you know, just in some ways it's like, if, if you think of it as like a, a race or something, it's like walking the track before you run it or something, mm -hmm. just to take a look at what, what it is and the length. After that, we will then start to move around and start to get sort of notions of blocking. And then I bring in the script supervisor so she can start, Renetta, who would, she would, she would, you know, take notes and Robbie so he could start to sort of look at it from his perspective. And then uh, that then finds its way to the location once we had the location. And that location was actually more challenging to find than one would think, you know, mm -hmm. find a crappy apartment in Hollywood. <laughs> but I could show you a few. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but because uh, we wanted, again, sort of a sense of uh, a sort of theatrical uh, sense to the apartment. I, I I wanted that kind of split. It almost has a kind of bifurcated set, uh, you know, stage set mm -hmm. look to it. Or or I also thought of it as split screen, the way the kitchen and the and the uh, living room sort of you can see both with this sort of wall between them, but it's yeah. it's open it's open and closed at the same time. So then we rehearsed them in that space, and then by the time we were shooting. Um, and we had two days to shoot it. It was, I think, 11 pages in the script. They have now the blocking kind of inside them. They have the lines. So, you know, in, in, in a sense, it's it's like creating a kind of very, you know, a, a real structure to it. Uh, I find in, in, I find in creating kind of structure, uh, it, it then gives them freedom within those parameters mm -hmm. and and they can just kind of exist yeah. and, 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 and be there. But also what we've done throughout that is Jen and I then now have a sense of how we're going to cut the scene and Robbie and I now know how we're going to shoot the scene. And well, first when they come in, it's sort of, we're, we're kind of moving with the characters, but in, in quite a wide, we stay in the same shot quite a bit, just as they're sort of in the room, seeing them in that space, sort of, and as they sit down, we get in, we come in a little bit closer, uh, but still accentuating this sort of wide. And, and that's another example of like thinking about the space between people. And when you do cut to the wide of them in those chairs in that room, you know, and, and, you know, we didn't start with that. We sort of wait, we let them talk for a while and then we come out, you mm -hmm. know, I, I think I, I often like shooting, like if you're going to have a wide shot in a scene revealing it later rather than in the beginning. Mm -hmm. I think it often has sort of a different emotional 
yeah. in, impact. If you put it in the beginning, it's, it's, it, it, you know, it establishes things you're kind of feeling, you know, but there's something about like, it can be sometimes a little bit sort of startling or, you know, it can say more mm-hmm. if you, if you wait. And then as you say, I mean, one thing that came up in the blocking, which I think was very helpful and helpful for the actors was that the way they move in the scene in some ways is emblematic of how they've been throughout the whole movie. So that Charlie is often walking away. He's the one, he's finding distraction while they're talking. Nicole is trying to get him to, to focus, to, you know, at least face what's going on. And he's doing a dish. He's yeah going into henry's room he and seems obsessively looking for something else to do the whole yeah, time. yeah yeah it's yeah. almost like he's running and so that when he does come forward when he does start to confront i think we feel and also understand the toll that it may and will take on him mm-hmm. the most emotional painful part for nicole was is towards the beginning of the movie because she's already arrived at this point of departure yeah He's sort of in some way sort of trying to keep things as much the same as possible, given that they're entirely different. (laughs) And and she's open to true change uh, and needs true change and 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 wants true change. And I think that helped both the actors when you can find physical movement and physical action in some ways connected to the emotional life of a scene. You know, that's the goal. I mean, it's it obviously is the most helpful for them, but I actually think it's the most cinematic too. Because we shot it over two days, uh, we focused, I mean, we shot it in order, essentially, although often, you know, some shots we knew could work. There might be some wides that work early and then they also work later Mm -hmm. in the scene. So we would, they would have to do the whole scene and it was truly exhausting for them. Likewise, on day two, when we're focusing more towards the end of the scene, which is more emotional and and intense and and physical too, for Adam, uh, particularly because he's punching a wall, yeah. um, they would still often have to start much earlier in the scene as a kind of runway to get to those points. So it was really, as I said, it was, it, it was ex- exhausting and exhaustive the way we did it, but incredibly gratifying for that reason. It was both the hardest thing I've ever had to shoot and also the most gratifying because of what was happening. Well, that comes through. And, and I think it's it's one of the, the most uh, sort of electrifying scenes of the year. And I think the test of that, the weird modern test of that is, uh, does it become a meme? And it's become a meme. So you've got staying power. Which is- <laughs> Fantastic. We're moving into the final lap here. I just have some, aside from the movie, some sort of rapid fire questions for you. The first one is New York or Los Angeles. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but But as someone with kind of a clear preference there, I think. What's the best part of LA and what's the worst part of New York? I mean, I love the sort of country aspect to LA. I love hiking in LA. I do, I do find that sort of city country aspect of LA kind of beautiful and compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually the opening of Greenberg was sort of designed based on that concept is because it starts with a shot of downtown and then it moves over and you're on this hike. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think I like how those things live side by side. I also like I still think that, you know, the movie business is cool. You know, I think it's cool. There are all these billboards and movie studios. I find movie studios, old studios, beautiful. And, you know, the connection to old Hollywood, I love. And Mm -hmm. worst uh, part of New York, the worst part of New York. Well, the worst part of New York is, um, this is true of every major city right now, but the sort of the construction, I think, I think is the worst part of New York. Um, It's like, it'll be a great city when they finish it. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Uh, 
it's still there's they're getting there in some ways because la is it since it's a newer city when you bring newer corporate aspects to it banks and drugstores it, it can hold it whereas <laughs> new york there's something i do find heartbreaking about you know you know the cedar tavern becoming a nail salon and, oh yeah, yeah uh you know other music which is a record store i loved is now a all coconut store i, I can't believe that a that there's more of a market for that. <laughs> I mean, I get what's happened to records and technology yeah, yeah. with technology, but I, I still don't see how an all coconut store can survive. <laughs> there you go. What uh, time of day are you the most productive as a writer? <laughs> I think, unfortunately, the most productive I am is is about like six thirty, knowing I have to leave at seven <laughs> uh, in the evening, I've, having worked all day or tried to and gotten very little done. And then suddenly, and suddenly I have a dinner and suddenly I'm just full of ideas and now, and then I'm going to be late and I'm still trying to write, get them all down. And I probably, what I probably should do is just create fake appointments for myself. Yeah, When you have yeah. something else to do is when you're most creative. That's yes. what it sounds like. Uh, when you hit a creative slump, what tends to get you out of it? Well, I think sometimes it's grinding through and sometimes it's walking away. I mean, mm -hmm. I know that's not helpful, but, but, uh, I do think that's the case. I think when you're lucky and every so often some writing feels good. I feel like, you know, I'm in a flow and I'm not thinking about it. It's just coming. It feels kind of exciting. And in some mm -hmm. days is really just grinding, but that doesn't feel good. So then there's that <laughs> sense of like, well, it's, oh, this stuff's not good, but that it's just as necessary. You know, yeah. it's like, um, uh, get a coat of paint on there. Yeah. 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 Just like, yeah, just, let's just do it. Just write yeah. something. Yeah. And then last question, everyone gets it. What was the movie that made you fall in love with movies? The Wizard of Oz and um, Robin Hood with Errol Flynn. Those were both movies of my early childhood. I saw both on television, but then also I would got to see in the theater, like at revival houses. And they both were a huge part of my sort of childhood, but also like my kind of fantasy life of thinking. I mean, I just, I always sort of thought about those movies, but Errol Flynn, Robin Hood is just exciting and romantic and beautiful. And but the the end of The Wizard of Oz, where she says goodbye, I, goodbyes always make me sad in movies. Mm. E.T. later would have a similar effect. But yeah. the relationship between her and the Scarecrow was very touching to me. And that's that sort of having to say goodbye, even though of course they turn up on the farm later. But that doesn't have the same. Ah, I hear you. Yeah, thing. That's sure. not the same feeling. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, Noah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, this, I think, is your best film. So congratulations on it. And, and it seems to be uh, striking the right chord with folks as well. So that's heartening to see. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you about it all year and especially here today. So thank you, man. Thank you, Chris. So I saw Marriage Story pretty early on this year, and I've come back to it a number of times, not necessarily because I want to wallow in the emotions that Noah conjures, though they are exquisite. But because I've frankly become rather transfixed with how he and his team told this story through impeccable craft and attention to the visual storytelling, as you just heard. And that's what we're all about here on The Call Sheet. So see it for yourself and perhaps you'll agree. Marriage Story is available to stream on Netflix right now. The Call Sheet is a Netflix podcast hosted by me, Chris Tapley. The show is produced by Noah Eberhardt and the team at Blue Duck Media. Stuart Park created all the original music in this episode. And a special thanks to the team at Netflix. 